0: Morning. Morning to the healthy. Amen. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, my family, the whole crew uh, got taken out last weekend, so we're on the men. But um, anyway, hope you guys are doing good. We are in the middle of this series going through Deuteronomy, which is a huge book in the Old Testament. We're going to go through that in four weeks. And we're in the third week, so it's just kind of a ten-thousand-foot view of a very deep book that you could probably take the whole year and kind of dig the nutrients out of to uh, just preach. And so it's it's really rich. Uh, and so anyway, so if this is your first Sunday, you're kind of joining us midstream. But uh, hopefully as you kind of jump on, uh, you'll be able to kind of track with uh, where we're at in the story and kind of journey with us. So um, just to kind of catch up, uh, this is Moses' last speech before the nation of Israel is going into the promised land. Uh, They've gotten out of Egypt, they've traveled for 40 years, uh, and now they're about ready to go into the promised land. And uh, this is 40 days before they go in. Moses gives uh, numerous addresses. There's three major ones. Some people break it up into eight. Um, but anyway, there's, there's, uh, so this is his kind of final impartation. This patriarch, father, who's been leading these knuckleheads for 40 years, has given his last kind of like, this is what you need to know before you go into the promised land that has a lot of big enemies and giants in it. And uh, you need Him. So, kind of a core verse that kind of stuck out from the last couple weeks. Deuteronomy 10, 12 this, it says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. The principles of God's covenant that He laid out to Israel were clearly expounded so that the children of Israel could fully understand the issues that were involved in being a holy, set-apart people in a land of different people who served different gods. So God spent 40 years preparing them, and again, this is His final address. So before we dive in, let's pray and... uh, Let, have God, Holy Spirit, tee our hearts up. So, Lord God, we just uh, thank you for God bringing us here. Thank you for opening up our hearts and our minds to, God, hear your word. God, it's what we're crying out for, uh, a word of truth in a sea of lies. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us anchor our lives and our hearts and our minds into your word and teach us how to be your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, to kind of tee this one up, have you ever met someone new? This kind of happens all the time. Met someone new, and the kind of the first face they show you, they're kind of like, man, this is kind of a cool cat. Like, man, I like this person. And then you hang out with them for maybe, you know, three, four, five times, and then maybe that sixth time, like a different face of them kind of shows, you know? Now, it could be, it doesn't necessarily have to be bad, you know, like, man, you just blew up on your wife. Like, no, 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 it doesn't have to be like totally like dark. It could have just been like, uh, yeah, he does this kind of weird thing when he eats his food, you know? And it's just kind of like, Wow, there's some kind of weirdness or like a weirdness or a, a little uh, uh, proclivity or uh, uh, thing kind of shows up and you're just kind of like, oh. Could also be where you kind of learn a little bit about their history. And it's like, uh, wow, this, you're a little bit deeper. You, you, you have this kind of nice exterior, but man, there's kind of a story behind you. Man, I I didn't know that there was that level of trauma. I I wouldn't have guessed. And so as we kind of get to know people, we just kind of see different facets to who they are. And some are shocking, and some make sense. And as you kind of get to know them, all those facets kind of begin to kind of come together in kind of this unique kind of pearl, you know, or, or gemstone of of treasure that's there, that kind of makes that person's story. And it's kind of the same way that, that people experience God when they begin reading Deuteronomy. They begin seeing a different side of God, a different face that maybe they had never seen before. It was... Like I, I, was, I, I didn't grow up with this type of God, with this kind of langu- with this kind of language, this kind of harshness or these kind of judgments. And so it's very hard for us to maybe comprehend in our modern mind to maybe understand where this is going, or, or why did God say what He said? So, if you've, if you've been reading along in uh, this book with us, uh, one of the most common objections when one reads this power-packed book is seeing the rashness of God's judgment over people over the land of Canaan, over the people of the promised land. Like, why? So, so there's a, there's quite a few times where God issues a command to uh, not only Moses before they get in there, but also at Joshua as they get into the promised land to completely wipe the people out. Men, women, and children, completely wipe them out. And it's, and it's, and it's this, um, it comes, there's a Hebrew word to it, it's called haram, it means total destruction. And when we read these kind of commands by Yahweh, for his nation, who are his people, who are supposed to be his holy, set-apart people, he's using his nation to kind of wipe other nations out. And it's very hard for us, and it, and, and it's hard for me, you know, when we when we wrestle with kind of things like this. It's maybe one of those deeper questions that kind of, how do we make sense of all that? Um But I would say that there's a fully moral basis to the conquest. Earlier on in the story of God and His people, in Genesis, it actually speaks of this moment. In Genesis 15, it says that God led Abraham out of his father's land, and He spoke to Abraham concerning this promised land, and how he could not yet go in there. Abraham could not possess the land because the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. And this is some of the things that we start picking up uh, from the Lord about how he maybe views some things. And so as we kind of journey through this, I know we're kind of wrestling through kind of a hard thing. I'm just kind of maybe going maybe toward the hardest question that kind of gets asked as we read through this, but I want us to maybe understand of like, okay, Okay, I know God thinks differently than I do. And so maybe if I could just kind of pause and before I kind of just launch this kind of judgment back at the Lord, which I get, totally understandable. But before we kind of do that, maybe let's just kind of pause and see maybe why he could go there. Cool? All right. Uh, whenever you sleep with a heater on, you end up pretty dry in the morning, anyway. Uh, okay, so let's read this verse in Genesis. This is what the Lord said to Abram, Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abraham, same guy, know for certain that for offering uh, that your offering will uh, let's start this over. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. So, basically, your descendants are going to be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they they shall come out with great possessions out of Egypt, which they did. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites, is not yet complete. So what's that saying? That's saying that God had eyes on also the Amorite nation. Not that that they were His people or His possession, but His eyes were upon it and He saw the depravity as the depravity of that nation increased that the judgment would follow. Leviticus eighteen teaches that the morality of a people either allows them to occupy a land or else causes the land to expel them. Now, that's an interesting premise. The morality of the people within the land causes them to either occupy the land or get kicked out of the land. I think if you know a little bit about history, you could probably say, wow, wow. Whether they were godly nations or not, that kind of seems how it works out. When the morality of the people decline, seems like that brings God's judgment to that nation. So the reason Israel possessed Canaan by dispossessing the Amorites was that the sin of its inhabitants abounded to the point that God no longer allowed them to occupy that land. And you think, man, how badly could that have been? Like, how bad could that have cult- that culture been? How dark. And to the point, was it that dark? I mean, you kind of start kind of asking questions as you kind of process this, this in real time. It's just kind of like, okay, well, how dark? Was it that dark? Is that there, like, how about like, if there were like hundred. And then as I kind of like thinking about this, I started thinking about this story that we find in Genesis of God talking to Abram about Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so in Sod- Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham had this conversation, Genesis 18, and he asked God this question Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God was bringing judgment on this, these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he let Abraham know about his judgment. And in that, they're in their relationship, Abraham comes back to God and says, God, are you going to wipe these people out if there was just 50 righteous? What about 50 righteous? And God comes back. He goes, okay, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. And then Abraham, it's such an interesting dialogue because it goes on for quite a while. And then Abraham goes, well, okay, Lord, what if there were of those 50, let's say, maybe five weren't really like legitimate, right? We kind of like examined them and they, oh, it's like, would you wipe 40? How about five? So how about 45? And he goes, 45, Sure. And then he goes back, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? Like, it's kind of like, how many countdowns do you need? But then it gets down to like, okay, if there's 10 righteous in the city, God said I'd spare it. So what does that say to the, for these cities that God issues total destruction? I mean, again, it's really hard to kind of answer a really big question like this in 10 minutes on a Sunday morning. But it is kind of like, okay, maybe, there, maybe there's kind of like justification for God to do what he does to his own planet. I mean, we kind of don't have any much problem when it comes to like, oh, God wiped out with the flood, and here comes Noah. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, Cool. It's like, wait, the whole earth got wiped out. There was like civilizations, massive maybe technologies that was going on, and then boom, here's this flood. Yeah, okay, cool, here comes Noah. It's like we don't have much uh, moral ethical problem maybe with that, but when it kind of maybe comes to issues like this where God's giving command for his nation to kind of wipe people out, it's like, uh, that's kind of hard to reconcile. So, not to fully answer the question, but it's a lot to wrestle with there. But at the end of the day, I trust Jesus, who not only affirmed the law of Moses, but obeyed it fully, which we'll get to. But um, Jesus was the full reveal of who God is. And there is some facets to when we get to know God more about his judgment that is true about who he is. It's what makes his love actually more beautiful is his justice, is his judgment that he comes and he actually makes things right. He isn't just this kind of love, ethereal, kind of like, let's just be happy, kumbaya, that there actually is an account for our lives. That there actually are our judgments and the things that we do and say and think actually matters and actually, actually brings heaven or hell through our lives what we do. So anyway, really tough to wrestle. So today, I just wanted to kind of hit that subject really quick and, and give it justice, but uh, anyway... We are now in chapters twelve through twenty-six. Um, oh, what was that? I don't know. Um, okay, so um, we're gonna we 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 we've gotten up to through chapter eleven, and uh, we're now in chapter twelve. Now, beginning in chapter twelve, um, through twenty-six, it's one of the most difficult portions of the Bible to kind of outline. Um, There doesn't seem to be uh, hard lines as Moses is uh, extrapolating out the Ten Commandments. He seems to be giving practical, actual examples of how to carry out this law. But they seem to kind of follow the flow of the Ten Commandments. And uh, so Philo, a Jewish philosopher in the first century, was the first to kind of suggest this kind of order. Uh, if you kind of read through it, you can kind of see how it's hard to kind of categorize these laws that are just kind of come and run after another, and, and they don't seem to have much relationship with uh, themselves. And so, but both Luther and Calvin in the 16th century, and several modern interpreters have kind of saw it this way, so I'll just kind of lay it out. But again, it's kind of uh, loose, and and there's other people that have kind of outlined it in in different ways, but I felt like this was the one that makes kind of the most sense. So um, that it follows, 12 through 26 kind of follows the flow of the Ten Commandments, so you might start uh, in chapter 12 through 2. So here's kind of the kind of outline. Uh, Moses kind of lays out some laws regarding the first commandment. So from chapter 12 verse 2 through 13 and 18, he's laying out some commands about idols and about not bowing down, not worshipping other idols about how you need to worship God. Then it, it kind of jumps in second commandment, misuse of God's name. Um, we kind of talked about that last week, um, the, kind, of the the, kind of the American understanding, don't use God's name in vain, uh, that kind of phrase of like, uh, if we were to say, gosh, dang it, you know, in real, uh, but, and you kind of get scolded for that, right? Don't use His name in vain. Well, that's not what that phrase means. It means to take on the name of Yahweh. And then using that name in vain. That's what that phrase means. So, just to kind of put that in your cabeza. All right, um, number, uh, and then kind of the third commandment Uh, observe the Sabbath, um, 14 through 16. Then he moves on honor your father and mother. Those are those verses. Uh, The fifth commandment, do not murder. So it kind of gives some laws about when somebody gets murdered. Or what about somebody who is a murderer in another town and they flee that town and come to another town? What are some laws there? Um, God's laying out some of these laws, and and we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty. Again, this is 10,000-foot view. But as you get in there, just know that a lot of these laws are given so that they are separate and distinct from how the other cultures are doing it, okay? So, you might say, like, man, God, that's kind of weird about, like, shellfish, lobster. Man, there's a lot about shellfish in this book. Like, what about, what's up with shellfish? And it's like, okay, well, near that, near that land, there is a huge god that worshiped uh, Dagon, which is a huge fish god. So I don't know. It could be just like, hey, just be separate, apart from that. They're also the, uh, what are they? <laughs> the cockroaches of the sea. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, so, but there are some probably health benefits to that as well. Um, but God's trying to, to, to lead a people into a land that has developed cultures, and he's, trying to lead them to be a distinct, set-apart people. But usually these laws are founded in generosity. So you might say, man, that kind of seems harsh. It's like, no, this actually is generosity. So giving uh, grace to the foreigner. If a person does get in trouble, they can flee to another city, and there's kind of cities of refuge and kind of how they handle justice. It's quite unique. Sixth commandment, don't commit adultery, kind of lays out some rules there about sex, adultery, fornication, all that jazz. Seventh commandment, don't steal. Eighth, don't bear false witness. Ninth, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Tenth, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. So this is kind of the general outline of this whole kind of dicey section. And uh, so if, you, uh, if you're reading through it, um, yeah, it seems, some of these seem pretty harsh. Again, there was no kind of capital punishment. There was no kind of government to institute uh, kind of punishment. I mean, we kind of take for granted that there's actually a separate entity named government that kind of takes care of justice kind of issues. Um, and that's kind of like that you, the, there's a grace to that in a larger city, right? But if you're in a, in a small village, I mean, you're involved in you know, kind of uh, bringing a sentence upon someone's life if they or, or, or giving them a penalty to... If they committed something criminal in in uh, in the village, and you have bearing the burden of giving that judgment, I mean, we're kind of separated out from this kind of world of being of issuing judgment um, over others. So it's really hard for us to kind of wrap around this. But again, it's pretty harsh. I mean, stoning. Anyway, we won't get into that. That's a whole other kind of maybe big thing. But. Uh, stoning. It, it was, again, to kind of maybe keep, it's to keep this people pure. Keep the people pure. Now, again, in the New Testament, kind of God changes the script up a little bit. So, this is just kind of for the nation of Israel. But hey, anyway, one other way to kind of divide this as you kind of read through it. And again, we're just 10,000-foot view Is to kind of read through it based upon three themes. God has kind of three themes, 12 through 26. And the three themes are worship, here's how to worship me, here's laws about worship. Then here's laws about the land. Okay, so there's a lot of laws about the land. And then there's laws about community. Here's how to interact with other human beings, here to interact with the foreigner. And so, as you kind of read through it, you can kind of group it that way. Here's kind of laws around worship, okay? So anyway, all these laws and regulations were given by God to make them a set-apart people that reflects the nature and reality of Yahweh in a land that didn't know Him. So the covenant that God made with uh, Israel at Mount Sinai conveyed Yahweh's will for what he intended Israel to be, to be both theologically and ethically distinct from the disinherited nations they were surrounded by. These distinctions were obligations to the nation of Israel, not just suggestions as we kind of take God's commands today. Israel was to be holy and fulfill God's original Edenic purpose of spreading His kingdom rule and family to the ends of the earth. And that's the theme over the nation of Israel. I'm going to bless you so you can bless, be a blessing to the nations. And that theme echoes again over His church. I sent my Christ to redeem you, to restore you, to be my kingdom image bearers. As I dreamed of in the garden, so that you can be a blessing, and so that you can be, ble- be a blessing to the nations. And so Israel's status as Yahweh's own portion was not an end in itself, but again, a means by which Israel could draw all the nations back to Yahweh. There's one key theological idea that I think we need to grasp before we kind of move on in this and kind of wrap up this book in Deuteronomy. Uh, as we kind of read this, you know, we live in kind of a modern world, obviously, with uh, lots of education and opportunity, progress. And we kind of can distance ourselves from the world of ancient Israel obviously there's a gap a knowledge gap of how do i understand their world and i think it's uh, there's a concept that deuteronomy really brings home that i really think it's really important for us to kind of understand how israel thought and it's the i and it has to do with god's holiness god's holiness many of these Laws that Moses just laid out before the people were grounded in the need to teach people that God was unlike anything else. He was so, he's so other than anything else. In his nature, in his character, he is unique. He's completely other than humanity or anything else. Holiness isn't necessarily about moral conduct. About the idea that we should behave a certain way to reflect God's distinct moral standards. He wanted the concept of his otherness to permeate everything in ancient Israel. God is other in every way, his realm is supernatural, our realm is terrestrial. The earthly space he occupies is made sacred and otherworldly by his presence. People had to be invited and purified to occupy the same space as Yahweh. So being unclean and unfit to approach sacred space was a serious matter for ancient Israelites because God was seen as holy. And that is why the tabernacle and later the temple had so many allusions to Eden. I don't know if you kind of kind of read through the descriptions of what, went, what the accoutrement to the tabernacle was, but there was a lot of uh, illustrations to the garden. Uh, in the tent, there were uh, uh, different fruits and different gems and different uh, vines and different things that made them uh, remember the garden. The ephod on the high priest had numerous gems, all of them found and listed in the garden. And so, as they came before the Lord, they were constantly reminded of the garden that was lost and the desire for God to get His people back there. And that one day, He would bring them back to Eden The Israelites needed to to be reminded of the dark side of cosmic geography. There's this kind of theological term called cosmic geography. You kind of think of like, well, our kind of geography, maps, right? We kind of have a sense of our own geography. But let's say you overlay the geography of the supernatural realm over that. That's cosmic geography. And so kind of territorial, Paul kind of preached about uh, high powers and principalities and all this kind of thing. So there's kind of cosmic geography, and it's kind of a cool term anyway. um, But if the Israelite camp and later the nation of Israel was holy ground, the home of God and His people, therefore the terrain outside of Israel was unholy ground. So wherever they went, it was holy ground because God's presence was with them. So this sense of holiness needed to be preserved, especially out in, not only in the wilderness because there's kind of an understanding there's evil spirits out there that um, actually, well, let me get there. One Israelite ritual brought, okay, oh, they kind of, No, I'll get there. Praise God. All right. It's in there. I I put that in there. All right. Great. Uh, One Israelite ritual uh, brings this kind of uh, lesson home when it comes to understanding holiness and how important keeping the sacred space uh, was for the nation of Israel. And it's uh, uh, the illustration is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, it's known as Yom Kippur. Probably seen that on your calendar, probably at one time. Oh, Yom Kippur, yeah, Jewish holiday. I have no clue what that is, but um, that, that was the Day of Atonement. And that happened once a year and um, uh, held every year. And the, it's described in Leviticus 16 if you want the uh, deeper details. But to the, the high priest, uh, they brought him two different goats. And one was sacrificed. This was the goat to the Lord. Uh, that, that goat was sacrificed and his blood was sprinkled in the sanctuary to cleanse it of human defilement for another year. Uh, they would cleanse uh, the high seat. They would cleanse the uh, Ark of the Covenant. They would cleanse the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. You, they would cleanse everything with the blood of the of this goat. The other goat was not killed. The high priest was to take the live goat and lay his hands on its head and then confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. That goat would symbolically bear all the sin upon itself. And then that goat was sent out into the wilderness for what the Bible says, Azazel. That goat was for Azazel. Where well, you're like, man, who or what is Azazel? Like, I thought that was just the wilderness. Now, uh, no, another translation uses scapegoat, right? Okay, so that's kind of a clean translation. But um, actually, it's actually a name, so who or what is Azazel? Some translation render the word scapegoat instead of Azazel. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Hebrew word in question is a proper name. And that name is the name, actually, of a demon. During the wilderness journey to the Promised Land, the Israelites had been sacrificing, actually, to demons. Because out in the wilderness, it's scary. There's, it's evil chaos. There's demons out there. And so they were sacrificing to demons. This actually speaks of in Leviticus 17, 7. It says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Which is like, whoo, that's kind of strong language there, Lord. But uh, that, that's what it said. So they did that because they feared evil forces that would threaten their camp. And they were in the wilderness after all. Outside the Israelite camp, therefore, it was a space of evil entities. So this practice had to stop, and so the goat of Azazel accomplished that. The goat for Azazel wasn't an offering to evil gods, because the goat was never sacrificed. Instead, sending it into the wilderness was a symbolic way of cleansing holy ground from sin. Right? So you put the sin... You sent it out of the camp. The camp's now holy again. Again, symbolically, because we're all broken. But it was like this concept of holy ground, and they were very passionate about it. So, then generations later, what's cool about this kind of like concept of holy ground that these Israelites kind of constantly had to kind of maintain in a land filled with different gods. That like God said, if you maintain this kind of holiness, I will guarantee you victory. If you maintain this kind of sense of holiness, this kind of like cleanness before me, I promise you that every large enemy that would stand before you, that I will give you victory. It's this massive promise God gives His people. But of course, the people fail. The people don't honor God in that way. The people in the promised land, once they get in there, like we said last week, it was two generations later, where they completely dissolve into worshiping the gods of the land of Canaan. Canaan. But it's interesting, generations later comes a promised one who, the day his ministry begins, when God said from heaven, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, the first thing he does is he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy, just like the nation of Israel went out into the wilderness and was tempted by the enemy and lost. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, representing 40 years of the nation of Israel, and wins. So he begins his ministry with an actual win that the nation of Israel had never won. Days of obedience in the promised land, full constant obedience. The place that he would expect to find evil forces of evil, he conquers Satan's temptations, all using passages from Deuteronomy. Then he ministered to his people, showing and telling them the gospel of the kingdom. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the only Israelite to obey God totally in the promised land. He alone kept the letter of the law code that was set forth in this book. You start reading this and you're like, man, who in their mind could keep this? Who before the Lord could say, hey, I am fully holy before the Lord? No, 613 laws that you had to kind of download and incorporate into your life. And the nation of Israel knew that that was kind of beyond them. They knew that God wanted their heart. They knew salvation was in faith like their father Abraham. And so, his ministry culminates by yielding his perfect life to his accusers. He was crucified Not in the holy city of Jerusalem. No, he was brought outside the city because he's unclean. Why is he unclean? He lived a perfect life, but he is unclean like that goat for Azazel. Our sins were placed upon him by the high priest of heaven. Almighty God, Jesus' death and resurrection sanctify us and make us fit for God's presence. Our sins are taken away. Though we are unclean and imperfect, if we have loyal allegiance in Christ, our imperfections are overlooked and we are made holy because of Jesus. So where's that sacred space now? In Christ. We don't need a tabernacle or temple marked for sacred space, right? This is just a building. This is not sacred space, even though we kind of maybe consider it to be. But God doesn't view it that way. God said in Christ, if you are in Christ, that Holy Spirit that comes and resides within you, you become the temple of the living God. You become that sacred, holy space that God says, man, in the midst of a culture of serving other gods, I can bring my people in the midst carrying my sacred space, my holy presence with them as I bring heaven to earth using my people doing it. So this concept of sacred, holy space is so important for the heart of a believer that we need to keep a sacred, holy space before the Lord, before the Lord in our hearts. So how do we do that? How do we maintain a sacred space before the Lord? Well, one of the things is keeping a clean conscience before the Lord, keeping a clean heart before the Lord. If you want the strength of holiness, the strength of God in your life, it's it's that, man, it, that I keep a pure heart before the Lord, that I'm not hiding anything from Him, that I'm not trying to play a religious game thinking like, okay, well, Friday and Saturday night, He kind of like turns His head. You know, He doesn't see that. And then Sunday, hey, what's up? Jesus, how you doing? And we can kind of play this religious high school game. I, I picked that up in high school. I knew that high school game. I thought I worked it really good until another friend of my life, a believer, saw my duplicity and just one day just said, hey, bro, I see what's going on. It's basically what he said. Hey, man, I see your game going on. And it's like, bro, I didn't know anybody else saw. It's like, man, I, you saw him a mile away. It's like trying to... You know, pick somebody or trying to notice two people flirting. It's like, man, everybody in the room knows two people are flirting. They think they're getting away with it. Everybody knows they're. Anyway, praise God. I'm just rambling, but keeping your heart pure before the Lord, keeping your heart pure. It's so important to keep a clear conscience before God. It's maybe one of the most important things in a believer's life is to keep a clear conscience before God. That God, I know, I admit, I'm weak and I'm broken. But God, I have to keep a clear conscience before you because when I hide from you, I know that is when I give the enemy just a clean open window, just an invitation to come in and make it worse. Take me down roads I never thought I'd go down. But if I keep a clean conscience, it keeps that door sealed shut because I'm, my edge is clean. I'm awake. And there's strength and holiness. And then the other thing that I think that we can kind of maybe have a sense of control over, I guess, you know, it's like the, the most thing we can control is ourselves on a good day, right? <laughs> but controlling our home. Keeping a sacred place in our home. Fighting to keep a sacred place in our home. And if it's just you, man, that job's easy. Going in there, cleaning house. Any sin, any iniquity that's been transgressed in that place, you need to take authority over. Repent of it, even if it's not yours. Like, God, I repent of whatever happened here. And I God, let, let me give you an example, just if you've never done this. But taking authority over sacred space, it's one of the things that I think believers are just so unequipped. And we go into homes, and we can get tormented for decades. We go into hotel rooms, and our children wake up with screaming nightmares. And you're like, man, what's going on? It's like that space space. You start learning as a believer that space matters. And with you there, you need to take authority over that space. So, like if you're moving into a house or, or a new room, just like Lord Jesus, I take authority over this room. By the, by the, in the name of Jesus, I, I, you know with a believer, with the Holy Spirit, we're here now. So any demonic spirit, you've got to go in the name of Jesus. Uh, Anything that transpired here, any ritual, anything, because that's happening way more often than you think, because Netflix and Amazon Prime is training the next generation in witchcraft, in rituals, because you can just pick it all up, and there's spiritual, there's legitimate spiritual power that comes from that, from the dark side. So as believers, we have to be equally equipped with the power of God and the power of Almighty the, the Holy Spirit. Amen? This, this is really important, taking authority, having authority and, uh, and maintaining that kind of clean heart, that kind of holy space before the Lord. I mean, we can't, you know, topple all the giants, All at once, that's going to frustrate you your whole life. But the one thing that you can kind of like, hey, before the Lord, I can do, is like, man, I'm going to keep a clean conscience. So anybody who comes before me is going to meet Jesus or kind of meet an aspect, see an aspect of who God is. And then anybody who comes in my house is going to feel a sense of peace. Is going to feel a sense of joy and. Then you begin your home begins a place of ministry. Like man, whenever I go over to Joe's house, man, all my kind of like thing just my all my the storm just kind of quiets down. And I don't know what it is about his house. It's like man, Joe's been praying in that house and bringing P- God's peace in there before you even walked in. Amen. All right. So sorry for the long diatribe. Handle a lot of stuff. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that it helps us be who you've made us to be. God, I pray that you would uh, help get us passionate about keeping a holy heart before you, a holy space before you, uh, taking authority over the things that are attacking our own lives, taking authority over the things that may be in our home. Uh, Lord, just help, equip us, be your believers in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org, and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.